with a very special episode of the Brando Cast, done in quarantine, done and stay at home, and done now with. I've had a lot of funny people on this show, as you know. I've had Paget Brewster, I've had Blank Apatch, I've had Brian Bassane, I've had Jimmy Pardo, Greg Barrett, Arden Marine, Jillian Vigman, so many goddamn funny Lara people. Kraft. Laura Craft, thank you. The guy who's throwing more names at me is the person in Los Angeles who makes me laugh harder than anybody else. If you're a fan of Sex in the City, you might know this gentleman as, what was your character's name? No idea. As the Jew that went on a date with, which character? Didn't even go on a date with her. Tricked her. Tricked Kristen Davis to meet me at a bar. I was her married friend. And she was like, I'm getting married. And I was like, I'll set you up. And then I showed up. And she slapped me in the face. Well, the person who showed up on that date for Kristen Davis was, and he's a fellow Northwestern Wildcat. He is a friend of mine in real life. I owe this man $300. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, it is the legendary and I say this about everybody legendary, but he is the legendary Ethan Sandler. Good evening. Guten Tag. First of all, the mustache looks amazing. I've always preferred when the burns are rocking the way you're rocking the burns right now. It looks great. And lastly, the screen on your microphone, it is the machines think that it's green screen. And so you get a Ramon showing up in your mouth area, just the face of a Ramon right now <laughs> in your Zoom background. It's an incredible glitch. You know, uh, I've been rocking the Zoom background for all my Al-Anon meetings. Of course, you know me. Yeah, you know, how that's, that's how I'm going to arrive at the party. That's I've smart. Got, uh, it's also maintaining the anon. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. I am the guy. And I actually, because I, we are, Ethan and I are using the modern technology of Zoom to yes. do this podcast. Um, I could do a, a lot of virtual backgrounds. I could do June Carter Cash and Johnny Cash. Yeah. I can do Led Zeppelin. That one looks great. I can do Rush. They, I'm you look like one of the members of Rush. I <laughs> proudly say I don't know which one you are blocking right now. That's the whole point, and I'm blocking Alex. I can be a member of the replacements. Or two, in this case. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes, I won't bore you people at home. Theater of the mind. I'm changing That's my great. backgrounds on Ethan Sandler yeah. as we're getting ready to do the Brando cast. And ever since I started the Brando cast, it's just taken us way too long to get to this point where we're doing this podcast together, but I'm so fucking psyched that you're here. I feel the same way about you. I, I was thinking today, we've actually known each other a long time now. It's almost 20 years. Um, it is almost 20 years. And let me That's just set not the, bad. Let me set the background for, for the friendship. Because of the vast Northwestern experience here in the city of Los Angeles, Ethan and I came into contact with each other when his best friend married my best friend they have been on they have been on the uh brando cast before betsy thomas and adrian wenner and when those two people merged they pulled together two very amazing peer groups but two peer groups that were really only separated by a few years of life experience uh and school and it, it is a gift that keeps on giving yeah amen. Uh, and and also ethan and i have worked together and i believe we wrote an episode of My Boys together. We absolutely did write an episode of My Boys together. I don't remember what happened in it, but I remember sitting in your office. I'll tell you what happened in that episode. <laughs> it, was, it was the episode of My Boys where the gang decided that um, they were too old for their bar 
and they needed to find a new one. Oh, yeah. At the beginning of the episode, they were like, why are all these young people in our bar? And they realized that they were getting phased out. Yeah. They had to go into the city of Chicago and they had to find another That's bar. Right. And we right. made we made fun of the craft brew thing. We made fun of me now. We made fun <laughs> of people that act like me the way I act now is what we did. In fact, as we were making fun of it, I was like, God, that sounds really cool, actually. Fancy beers. And I believe that that bar was called like the, um, oh God, the Angry Badger. Oh, wow. I, I really do. I think we made up a term and I was, I wanted the art department to make special t-shirts for you and me. Cause I yeah. actually thought I would like to go to the angry badger. Sure. Me too. Especially if it has all that huge tap list, that fresh, fresh tap list. You have an incredible beard going on. Ethan Thank always you. has, Ethan Sandler always has some sort of amazing Something facial hair going on. Going on. Uh, you look like the cool rabbi. I'm just going to say that. I could not look more Jewish if I tried. This is the most, I have, I have achieved prime Jewishness. I'm not, I don't even, I, that's just object. I'm not saying that with any kind of spin on it. I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean this satirically. I just mean, I, objectively, I look, I, I look so Jewish right now. I feel like you could go to the corner of Beverly and La Brea. And if you're yep. wearing the same outfit, yep. someone will come up to you and ask for advice. <laughs> Aisha Tora. Aisha. Aisha. Aisha, 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 Aisha. Right there. In front of Pink's. <laughs> I know Aisha. <laughs> the, the, the drag about doing these podcasts remotely where the technology is a little off is you, you cannot laugh because <laughs> la laughter screws up the audio file and all these goddamn things but god damn it i just wanted to throw up from laughter right there um may i quickly say i remember the first time we met we were Ooh. at betsy and adrian's in their back uh porch area and you had very long hair i'd heard of you of course and she betsy introduced me as living in silver lake and that my favorite restaurant was that faux place in that mini mall that was just called faux i think it's still there actually it is and um you were like totally get it totally get it strokes got it and i was so hurt that you wait. thought that i'd be into the fucking strokes and it wait. stuck with me all this time wait a minute we're, we gotta hash this out i put you in a box assuming yeah. that you liked the strokes that well, I looked like the kind of person that did like the strokes and I was moving from New York. So, I mean, you had a lot of, and I lived in Silver Lake and I liked the faux place. So you were, you were not wrong in your math. I just, it wounded me personally because I've never enjoyed the strokes for a second of my life. They have, they ripped off American girl and I don't, they're cool sounding, but I'll never, I'll never get over it. I apologize. Thank you. I would like to make amends to you and, 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 and as much as I can make amends to you during the coronavirus, maybe by having you on the podcast tonight is my way of saying, I'm sorry for putting you in a box. I'm sorry oh, yeah. for labeling you as like cool New York Jewish guy who's moved to Silver Lake. And just right. likes the strokes. Williamsburg to Silver Lake and he likes the, <laughs> he likes the strokes and the faux place, which is goddamn really amazing. It's so good. It, it, it is so good. Can I yeah. give you one more faux place that is not far from where you live right now? And I think everyone listening to the Brando cast might benefit from my suggestion. Is it Viet Noodle Cafe? It is not Viet Noodle oh, Cafe in, okay. in Atwater. It is a little place that's just called, I think they call themselves Hollywood Faux. 
and it's on Hollywood Boulevard. It is somewhere around Kingsley or Ardmore or Harvard, but it's in the mini mall where there's like a Bravo pizza. It's across the street from that motel on Hollywood Boulevard that has the really bad paintings of Michael Jackson and Elvis and Marilyn Monroe in the front directly across from that. And you see when you drive by, it says faux $4. (laughs) Yep. That's it. That's what you want. That's what you want. And when you go inside, it's just a mother and maybe her daughter. It's cash only. Yep. It is dirt cheap. It is 1993 yep. prices in the year of our Lord 2020. And I'm telling you, they do <laughs> a goddamn very good foe at that little place in Los Feliz. Okay. Shout two out. Min- two minutes from you. I wonder if they do curbside. Um, no, they, 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 they do not have the technology. I'm, I'm sure that they're, they're letting, I'm, pe- I'm sure people are eating in there right now. Yeah. Um, how are you doing in the coronavirus? Well, this is a little weird. I mean, you know, it's a little weird. It's definitely fucking with my head in many ways. And, but I, I, of course, am mostly just grateful and totally just chilling out. Also for people playing along at home, you and your wonderful family made a video that popped in the culture. <laughs> the cult. Can you tell uh, my people listening at home, my Aunt Jean in Hudson, Ohio, can you tell everybody what you guys did as a family? Aunt Jean, hello. Good evening. Uh, I hope you're safe and sound in Hudson, Ohio, you say? Hudson, Ohio, yes. My wife is an actress, and she has a friend named Matt who runs the Geffen Theater, and they do a stay-at-home theater situation to try to keep you know fundraising, et cetera, in these times and asked us to do one. Most of them are like really great actors reading serious material beautifully by a piano with candlelight, et cetera, or singing songs. This is the song that I wrote or whatever. And, but we just, you know, we didn't know what to do. And Catherine do uh, her credit was just, let's just do a scene from something with May's American Girl dolls. And so our daughter, who's 10, who really goes for it, and my wife and I performed excerpts from Glengarry Glen Ross with her American Girl dolls. Our son, who's 13, shot most of it and then edited it. It was great. I don't mean great like the quality was great. I mean, it was really fun in that we took it too seriously and it was like a real work day for all of us. And uh, it was pretty, it was enjoyable. Hearing my daughter swear like that really makes me happy. The effort paid off because it is, it is tremendous. I didn't know you guys did it and someone posted it on Twitter and I was like, yeah, of course, the American Girl, how many American Girl dolls does Mae Sandler own? Oh, that's a great question. I think that she has four, which I say with some shame because they're not cheap and nobody should have any of them. Although, you know, they are, it is a feminist. They are trying to tell stories of women. They always have been. And so, and their bodies are, you know, more realistic than others. Uh, okay. but she, she also has a couple of, uh, babies all, you know, she has old school dolls that have hung around a lot of horses. Do the American girl dolls have names? Yes. They come with names. Oh, they come with names. Yeah. They are, they are characters from history. They represent an era. They wear clothes from an era and there's a book that comes with them as well as often a movie. So it's like a full story experience for them. So these Amer- these four American Girl dolls uh, did a scene from Glengarry Glen Ross, and Ethan and Catherine Hahn and Mae Sandler did the voices, yeah. and it's spectacular. Which American doll did the best? Do you think? 
<laughs> that can't choose which which American Girl doll I love best. No, did the best in the Glengarry Glen Ross scene. <laughs> Who do you think was really on their A game in, just in terms of, of acting that day? I'll tell you what, man. May really, really fucking showed up to work. She yeah. really, she, I saw her working on stuff, on gestures, prop work. It was fun. Nothing would make me happier than you and Catherine becoming full-time Hollywood stage, parents. Stage parents. Like, I basically quit everything to be her manager. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to drive to Santa Monica. You have to drive to some very odd space I have to on, on, a, on Olympic and Centinella. Yeah. Because there's, a, there's callbacks for a Geico commercial. Yeah. Or and, you be, and you are just brushing her hair and yep. telling her that she's going to be awesome. And all yep. she has to do is yep. walk in that room and say, I could have saved you more. <laughs> just turn on the light when you go in there turn on the light uh yeah it's not it's it's a possibility for sure <laughs> yeah, well I don't, I don't know what else to do uh it was an incredible it was an incredible piece of film so everyone check that Thank out you. thanks so much the 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 sandler Hahn family doing glengarry glenn ross with american Losing gall Durrells. it's Gone all crazy. out there on 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 the web all right it is time for you and i to play it's time for you and i to do the brando cast my friend very excited, man. And I, we're not gonna, we're not gonna use a band that you don't know or don't like. We are going to use a band that Ethan gave me this morning. Supertramp were an English rock band formed in London in 1969, marked by the individual songwriters of founders Roger Hodgson and Rick Davies. They are distinguished for blending progressive rock and pop and their use of Wurlitzer and the saxophone. The group's lineup changed numerous times throughout their career, with Davies the only consistent member. Other longtime members include bassist Dougie Thompson, drummer Bob Siebenberg, and saxophonist John Helliwell. They have sold over 60 million records worldwide. And I will tell you this, logical song never disappoints. No, I agree with you about that. I would say there's a, there's a whole bunch of hits that never disappoint. They all have terrible moments in them. Like, each song has a, oh, no, 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 like, section in it. But then they get back to being, I have no, I, I'm, I, I have some shame about my love for this band. It's the most Caucasian band of all time. But this was it, man. Breakfast in America, crime of the century. Let's deal with the shame. Okay, come on. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you on the therapist couch, and I'm just going to say to you, tell me about that shame, Ethan. <laughs> Why do you feel shame when you listen to Supertramp? It's just the least cool rock and roll that has ever been made. But it's so funky. It's yacht rock, right? This is like the definition of yacht rock. I, I, uh, oh, look, the, it, we're about to tread into hyper nerd music um, uh, discussion. I would say that they dip their little tiny toe in yacht rock, but they also dip their tiny toe in progressive rock. Yeah, yeah, they prog out, but with a sax. So it's like it's always like yeah. But god damn that they both sing like angels. Yes, Hodgson and Davies. Yeah, and and most people listening at home, most of the songs that we're going to hear tonight when we talk about Supertramp are going to be Roger. Hodgson songs, yeah, and the logical song because of our age 
Yeah. Uh, when you and when I was in fifth grade, sixth grade, there was nothing bigger than the logical song. No. My brother scrawled the lyrics to the logical song all over the walls of his bedroom. Wait, tell me. He is a he is a great visual artist. And and in I think early high school, he basically busted out a Sharpie and <laughs> drew drew all over the walls and the walls of the closet figures, figures in different positions. It was super rad. And he wrote the lyrics to the logical song and an NXS song. Yeah. Falling down the mountain and yeah. kissing dirt. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Did he get the belt for that? No. No, to their credit, the folks were pretty chill about it. I think the divorce may have been happening in the, in that exact realm or the pre-rumblings. So I think there are bigger fish to fry. Okay, where are are we in Seattle? Where are we at this point? Yeah, the truth is we're in the next city over. It's an island called Mercer Island. It, it's in the middle of Mount uh, Lake Washington, which Seattle uh, borders on the east. I just I have to be real about that because I could tell a lot of people I'm from Seattle, but. Deep down, I'm I'm from the next town over. Would people from Mercer Island say I'm from Mercer Island first? Well, you know, it's a it's a Tony. It's grown into be a Tony Island, so you know what I mean. That has its own bagage, but uh, so and also, it's just cooler to say from Seattle. What was Seattle like before it was cool? Because Seattle got. Hyper cool in 1990, 91, even yeah. before Nirvana broke. Yeah. What was Seattle, Washington like before the world was like, hey, I'm moving to Seattle? <laughs> it was really dank. It was like cold and wet and slugs and down vests and jeans that fit poorly and wet feet. Everyone was always wet and cold. And it was, it was great. The air is so incredible. Um, the Sonics were, the Sonics won the championship in 70, the year Breakfast in America came out, 1979, the Sonics won the championship. Do you remember when the Sonics won the championship? Very much so, yes. It was great. Are you watching The Last Dance? This is not for the podcast. Are you watching The Last Dance? Oh, no, this is for the podcast. <laughs> This is for the podcast. Of I, I'm honored because a lot of my friends have written me notes about um, watching Bulls basketball with me. Our friends Betsy Thomas and Adrian Winter can do an impersonation of me watching <laughs> Bulls basketball uh, during that period of time where I would basically uh, watch the game in front of the television standing up like an assistant coach. Like I had a job to do. Like if, if Phil Jackson called me during the game, I would be able to tell him what to do in the moment. Get Steve Kerr out of there. He's just not feeling it right now. Yeah. Uh, and I'm near tears the whole time. And I'll, I, I will also tell you, my other big show, The Crown. Yeah. Ethan, I'm, not... I'm, I'm watching The Crown. Sure, man. Of course. What are you watching? Oh, I'm a disaster. Like, you know, we're, it's because we're really having trouble finding something all four of us would enjoy watching. So we're, we're showing them a lot of films that are not entirely appropriate. Like Stripes or Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Like, like Silence of the Lambs with our son the other day. Like, we're just, I think Catherine and I both are like, I can't wait. Now I have to start enjoying what we're watching because enough is enough. Wait, how old is Leonard right now? He's 13. God damn it. And he's really ready for 
to watch horror movies. He's into it. Oh, okay. Horror specifically. Yeah. Or now, just like he, he wants to be taken. Like we watched that Snowpiercer. Have you seen Snowpiercer? Of course you have. No, what's that? Tell me. It's, well, this can't be for the podcast because I don't remember the man's name and I really should because he's the director of Parasite. And I think he, this is the film he made after the host. It's called Snowpiercer and it takes place in a, giant, in a train in the future where the only surviving humans are on this giant train and Chris Evans is leading a revolt. And it's totally great and way too sophisticated for a 10-year-old. But we just, that's a great example of like, we're just doing it. Did you guys watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Yes. He, not with him, but I watched it on a plane. Do you have any feelings about that? I, I don't know. I have a lot of feelings about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm not sure how interesting they'll be, but I both really enjoyed and really hated that movie. Both things are true. I love the music. It's my favorite soundtrack of all time because the entire movie, they're listening to KHJ Radio, 93 KHJ, Los Angeles. And I will tell you how your nerdy friend Brendan is getting through the pandemic. I am listening via the the wonderful technology of YouTube. I am listening to full KHJ radio shows from the 60s with the real Don Steele and Robert W. Morgan. You can listen to giant chunks of that station as it was in Los Angeles back in the day. And it's my favorite thing. That is a weird segue into... We're listening to Dreamer in the background. Led by Hodgson and Davies, the early 70s version of Supertramp needed a hit to continue recording. They finally got one with the record Crime of the Century. Released in September 1974, it began the group's run of critical and commercial successes, hitting number four in Britain and number 38 in the U.S. Dreamer was the band's first hit single, and drove the album to the top of the charts. Another single from the record, Bloody Well Right, hit the U.S. Top 40 in May of 1975. That would be their only hit in the country for two more years. Most of the band said Supertramp hit their artistic peak on this record, though their greatest commercial success would come a bit later. And again, we are listening to Dreamer. Just the best. Just the best. This is one of those songs, because of our age, that I feel like I've heard 40,000 times. Yeah, but not enough. But not enough. It's just so rad. It actually, weirdly, I know that I am leading with my chin here, and if certain people are listening to this, they're about to throw up, but there's, I feel like LCD sound system actually weirdly can be found. Like, this is early dance music, early just, like, songs that are traveling through weird hooks, and like the vocals are are soaring and lyrics are all stop. And it sounds like it could have been recorded by a band today. That's the crazy thing about this particular song, Dreamer, and Super Tramp in general, because they were more nerdy in their approach to record making. Yeah. And they took their time and they were really into the craft. And I will say this, we're you and I are not gonna get into a nerd discussion about uh Super Tramp, but the thing that people should know is there was tension in the band, even at this point, between Roger Hobson and Mr. Davies because they had differing opinions about what a rock band could be or should be. One was pop, one was more progressive, and that is the tension that comes out in all of their songs. So which one of them is like, sax forever? It's always, sax is how we're going to do this rock and roll band. I think it's the Davies guy. He Davies, uh, D- Davies is the guy that sang... 
bloody well right. And oh, Roger yeah. Hodgson is the guy with the super high voice yeah. saying the logical song. Um, both of them played piano. Uh, neither of them played saxophone, but they were, that was their shtick of making them a little bit different from all the other British progressive bands that were, uh-huh. that, they, that were their peers at the time, like Jethro Tull. They yeah. were peers of Supertramp. Genesis, they were peers of, of Supertramp. So Supertramp is like, yeah, we're going to do the saxophone thing. We're going to make it jazzy. We're going to make it jazzy. They're almost, I dare say, they're almost the British Steely Dan. Uh, How do you feel about Steely Dan? I'm going to give you the opportunity. I'm going to give you the opportunity to weigh in on Steely Dan right now. I don't know. I'm fairly ambivalent. Steely Dan has similarly some really great jams that are just great. And I'm not saying it's cool, but I, but I do find myself singing along to a lot of Steely Dan. I do understand from a bird's eye view how disgusting they are. Don't you think as you and I get older, our hearts are softening to oh. bands that we hated so much when we were kids? Isn't Life's it weird? too short. Life's too short, man. I, I, will talk, I will say the next sentence in reference to rock and roll bands, but I mean this in a lot of areas, one area in particular. I'll find myself in conversations with some men that are like, no, nah, pass, you know, uh, not for me. Uh, and I'm like, why? What do you get out of, out of being like, no? If I came up to you on the corner yeah. of Beverly and La Brea and I said, Rabbi, how should I feel about the Eagles? Why not? Why not? I understand it's frustrating, but so is life. Enjoy it. Have a good time with your... You know what? Listen to those fucking morons, the Eagles, and enjoy it. Rabbi, is it okay for me to like Billy Joel now? Come on, of course it's nice to like a Billy Joel once in a while. All the time? When you make love to your lover? Of course not. Never, Shayna Khala, do not put the Billy Joel on when you're making the love. It will bring a curse to your family. With a hit album under their belt, pressures on Supertramp increased and the follow-up album, Crisis, What Crisis, had to be recorded in the summer of 1975 between two scheduled concert tours. Decades later, the band would continue to regard this album, Crisis, What Crisis, as one of their worst moments. Despite Supertramp's own misgivings, the album was well-received by critics. Can you give me... A portrait of Ethan Sandler in 1975. I'm speechless because I think people should people should know that what I was just subjected to. Ethan Sandler just played ukulele on the Brando cast. It is absolutely the first time that anyone has brought a musical uh, instrument into this situation. And you did it right. That sounded incredible. On brand. I learned that today during a Zoom call while I was on mute and held the ukulele below frame because I've lost my fucking mind. What was the Zoom call for? Uh, that's my day. Uh, my day job is on a Zoom situation. 
Okay, and and I hope I I would like to talk about this right now because I I believe that you are writing on a show, but led by two of the most fierce human beings and fierce comedy writers, Jen Crittenden and Gabby Allen Greenberg. Correct? Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, that is. I spend my my days on a Zoom with those two uh, amazing people and a bunch of other really hilarious and really nice human beings. It's all fine, but the Zoom sucks your inner, your soul out of your forehead. Okay, I, I, need, I, I actually seriously want to get into this for the podcast because, one, I think Jen and Gabby, who people might know their work from Veep, most famously, but th- these two women have been a, a writing team for a long time and have crushed it. Yeah. Both have incredible careers, and as a as a team, they're a, a powerhouse. Yeah, they've done so many cool things. What is it like writing in a Zoom situation? Because writing, even podcasting, it's better in person. If you and I were in person right now, I would be laughing too hard for this podcast. <laughs> Do you know what yes. I mean? Like, of and, and you're reading. You can't step on each other in, on Zoom because the audio goes crazy. Mm-hmm. I don't know when to jump in sometimes when people are talking. Uh, I, you know, the Zoom situation is a really weird one. So I would think that writing on a sitcom and Jen and Gabby sold a show to HBO? Fox. To Fox. Okay. So you guys are writing a Fox sitcom right now. Yeah. It's animated. Great. Uh, but, but still, like, how do you pitch? How do you, are you finding it hard to do some of those things? Yes, I am. Yeah. It's, yeah. uh, it's, it's um, really delightful to pitch something that you think is really funny and, and have like 12 little boxes of faces like looking so blankly at you. It's just, it's just things don't translate or it's a trip, but it's fine. And they're, to their credit, they're moving at such an uh, easy but efficient pace and they're really, they have such great spirits about it that it just goes great. That, but that's incredible, though. But but just what you said about like pitching something out, like when you're in a writer's room for people listening and you know outside the city of Los Angeles, when you're in a writer's room and you get the courage up to pitch something out, <laughs> you want that pitch to land like a like a stand up comic would like a joke to land in a packed comedy club. Like you, your brain needs the pitch to be received well, and if there's a little bit of a pause all writers go crazy and they think that they have to quit. They have to leave. They have to walk outside. They have to go into the restroom down the hall where CSI uh, Las Vegas is and they have to kill themselves because that pitch didn't go well. And, and I think that it's, you know, I've been doing the zoom thing on other podcasts and it's, it's challenging because we, we, we forget that when we're in close proximity to each other, we're reading, our brains are reading signals off body language and facial expressions and we're looking for different moments to jump in rather than just a weird pause in the discussion and then then that's when you jump in it, it so i mean god bless you guys for for doing that i i just i have such respect for what you're doing and you're working for two of my favorite people in la yeah yeah uh, totally. which is super cool super tramps next album even in the quietest moments was released in april 1977 and spawned a hit single with Give a Little Bit. As usual, the popularity of the album eclipsed that of the singles, and it hit number 16 in the U.S., number 12 in the U.K., and number one in Canada. 
During this period, the band permanently relocated to Los Angeles. I'm more interested in the idea that the band moved permanently to L.A. in 1977, 78. This is the last generation of music made just for, or especially for vinyl. I mean, until, of course, dance and hip-hop or whatever, but I just think that's great. That's why they all sound so fucking good. 100%. Super Tramp's switch to a more pop-oriented approach peaked with Breakfast in America, almost as big as Fleetwood Mac's rumors. For the last two months of completing this record, Roger Hodgson parked in a camper outside of the studio to work on mixing with brief periods of rest in between. He remembered feeling that it could be a big album and that if he spent days and sometimes weeks choosing the right songs and the right order, that he would be able to put together an amazing record. Released in March of 1979, Breakfast in America reached number three in the UK and number one in the US and Canada. The album spawned four successful singles, The Logical Song, Take the Long Way Home, Breakfast in America, and Goodbye Stranger. It was number one on the Billboard Pop Albums chart for six weeks until June 30th, 1979. In 1980, Breakfast in America won two Grammy Awards, including Best Engineered Non-Classical Recording, and it became Supertramp's biggest-selling record with more than 4 million copies sold in the U.S. alone. Ethan, one of the Grammys was for Best Engineered Non-Classical Recording. I also won that Grammy for the comedy album that you and I made in 1987. I don't know if you remember this. I lived in the trailer. I had very brief stints of rest. I was just appreciative that you were willing to put in the time to park your trailer outside of the studio. Yes, I had some issues that you were trying to control the situation. Just by wanted putting, to make a Strokes record. I just wanted to make my own Strokes record. You know what I mean? You know, I appreciate the fact that you're able to make the commitment to make something awesome. When did you guys decide to throw in to Los Angeles? When did you oh, and your um, significant other decide that LA was going to be the place for you? Early 2002. Was the job that Catherine got crossing Jordan? Fuck yeah, it was. <laughs> and who was the woman who was the lead? Who was the lead on crossing Jordan? Jill right? Hennessy. Jill Hennessy. Why would you pretend like you don't even fucking know that right now? It's on the, what are you talking about? Jill Hennessy. I do Jordan. remember, I do remember her meeting Jill Hennessy during that period of time because my then girlfriend was an executive at, at NBC. Sure. And they took Jill Hennessy from the law and order world and wanted to make her America's next sweetheart. And I think that Jill Hennessy was like, kind of like a drunken sailor. Like, I think <laughs> that that was sort of her, was that her vibe off camera? No, she's just like, she's just super b kind of bro -y. Right. Like she'll but drink you under the table. She'll say, dude, she's in control. She's not like a mess. She right. definitely knows her. She knows what the deal is in the corners of the room, but she's like very nice person, a musician. She spends most of her time now playing music, performing live. So where, where was it? Where was the first Sandler Han apartment in Los Angeles? We first rented a house in Mount Washington. Um, it was the most beautiful place ever. 
And it took me a million years to get fucking anywhere. And this was Thomas Guide days. And I have a learning disability when it comes to geography and how to get places, which you may have experienced with me before. All right, you have to nod like that's so fucking obvious. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, whatever. And uh, that house was so beautiful. They had a great cat. And uh, I let all the morning glories die. I didn't. I was too young and dumb to know how to fucking take care of plants. Did you realize that you guys were living in a hip neighborhood before it became hip? It, it did feel like there was like something was happening. This is an area for people outside the city of Los Angeles that uh, now is ultra hip. It's been ultra hip for the last fifteen years, but you guys were there beforehand. So was there? Let me just say some fun Los Angeles gang activity at the bottom <laughs> of the hill. <laughs> yes, yes. It was a lot of fun. It was a really, really good time. Because it's, it's kind of an area where you go from like Los Vatos doing their thing, and then you drive like five minutes straight up a hill. Self-realization center is at the top of the hill. <laughs> we used to go to there and play catch. This is how much children ruin your life. We used to go to that place and play catch with our mitts our gloves and a ball and just play catch. And then one time a, um, a German shepherd bit me and the monk that was there was barely apologetic, but that dog attacked me. Just you and Catherine playing catch with yeah. each other. Just have a toss. Did you guys ever, do you ever talk about playing catch with each other? Have you, have you ever just taken the time out as parents to just go and play catch with each other again? No, we don't. I don't. I would be hard-pressed to remember the last time we had it. Ethan, as your rabbi, I would like to tell you that I think that that might be something that you guys need to revisit. <laughs> Go outside and have a toss with your lover. Throw the ball beneath the sunset and say goodnight to the day and receive what you are being thrown. We're hearing it's raining again. <laughs> oh, this is a great song. During the recording of their next record, Famous Last Words, Davies and Hodgson found it harder to reconcile their musical ideas than they had before. There was a lot of tension in the band at this point. And it was apparent to the rest of the band that Roger Hodgson wanted out. This is after the big success of Breakfast in America. Famous Last Words was released in 1982, and it scored two more hits with It's Raining Again, which we're listening to now, and My Kind of Lady. A worldwide tour followed in 1983, during which Hodgson announced he would not be continuing with the band. Hodgson has stated that his departure was motivated by a desire to spend more time with his family and make solo recordings, and that there were never any real personal or professional problems between him and Davies, as most people thought. But this is the period where Roger Hodgson left the band. Always a bum out to people like me. I like bands that stay together. I'm confused when musicians hate each other and they split apart. Ethan Sandler. Stick it out. Just stick it out. Be together. Play the music together. Stay with each other. And then call it, call, then retire together. R.E.M. Perfect. That's how you do that. Have you heard any of Hodgson's solo music? I remember there being some sort of solo video on the the music television in the mid 80s and i remember thinking that's dumb why did the guy leave super tramp <laughs> you know they reformed and they put out a record in like 87 please i'll just i'll just read that to you right now as we hear cannonball 
in the background, the Davies-led Supertramp carried on, and they released Brother, Where You Bound in 1985. This album was a deliberate step away from the pop approach to the last studio records and included the top 30 hit single, Cannonball. Pink Floyd's David Gilmore played it on the album's 16-minute title track. And Ethan, I will tell you from this point on, I don't care about Supertramp. So I did not bother to go in and cut and paste from Wikipedia to give you any more facts about Silver uh, about Supertramp past Cannonball. I heard in preparation of this conversation, I did listen to that 87 album for five seconds, and that's where that LCD sound system notion came up because it was all synth, and it was, you could sort of hear that it was super tramp, but not really. It was un- unbearable. God bless. Uh, 1987. I have no idea what the, the title of that record is. Do you? Do you? No. No. Yeah. It doesn't matter because by 1987, super tramp kind of music is kind of dead. Oh God! I imagine yeah. in, I would imagine late '80s in Seattle, there was nobody listening to Supertramp because they're all revving up. Yeah. We, we're not yet grunge. We're not labeling anything grungy, but Seattle must have been really annoying in the late '80s. It was great. You would have loved it because it wasn't. It was totally yes. It was like self-aware, but it was really. It was so many bands always playing everywhere. It, that part of it was great. I wasn't cool. I was listening to Young Fresh Fellows. I had a really, I had a friend in high school who just had impeccable taste. I'm very grateful to Mick DeLeo because he introduced me to Mick DeLeo. Mick DeLeo with an N. Nick DeLeo. You've actually hung out with him at, I believe, my bachelor party. Is that possible, dude? It is. It is very possible. (laughs) (laughs) Which was fucking crazy. (laughs) We don't have to talk about it, but oh my god, you got fucking wings and you fucking sang karaoke and had karaoke and food. We were home by nine thirty. But he was your guy. He introduced me to just all the good shit. Was there a club? Do you remember like a club or a bar in or a venue in Seattle that where you went for the first time? You're like, oh my god, this is so fucking cool. Yeah, I saw bands because my friend John was in bands. He was in in really, really fucking great bands um, and continues to make music now. Still in Seattle, Um, he was in Hush Harbor and Seven Six Four Hero, the Magic Magicians, the Can't See. I know that these are not necessarily popular names. So I'm sorry if that was super annoying of me, but I'm just shouting out because he's the best. He had a million fucking 45s of current music that he was always playing. And we, so we go to concerts in people's fucking basements or like the alligator cafe. Um, it was great. And I'm only saying that with so much enthusiasm because I know that shortly thereafter it got um, insufferable, but but you were there. I mean, you're you're a citizen, so you didn't move there to partake in the insufferable nature of the grunge scene. No, no, I definitely no. And I can't. I don't want to pretend like I was awesome going to shows, but I, you know, it was just great. And then, um, and then basically Starbucks took off. You know what I mean? I blame Starbucks more than grunge. For real? Yeah, I think that that culture, the like, the dude with the pants that are just pulled up so tight and is just his wedgie's amazing and like. Tucked in, beautiful, no body fat, fucking everything's great. Bike helmet. Do you know what I mean? Great bag, expensive bag, rain gear in the bag, comfortable shoes, bike, tuck the pants in the thing, just fuck for three hours, sweaty eye contact sex. Do you know what I mean? Fucking read all the shit. Like, I just, that guy sucks. And I think he's there for Starbucks, not, not the other side of it, not the heroin chic of it. 
I think he's there because technology changes the way we live our lives. And you can change the world. You can change the world by changing your relationships and the way that you collaborate. And so starting today, we're going to start with stretching. You've just painted, you've just painted a portrait of, I would call him Seattle guy. Yeah, I just, I, you know what? I, yeah, I have friends. I have plenty of friends that just fucking went, went straight into the light. Wow. Were people, let me ask you this. Here's a horrible question. Did you have a friend who was really into Hart or Queensryche? Now, I, I, my association to Queensryche is as a Christian band. Am I right about that? They were an, an intellectual metal band. That's uh-huh. where maybe the Christian, you would confuse it, but they had something to say. That was their uh-huh. shtick. They were they political. Had, they're political. They're societal. Yeah. They're man versus man, man versus society, man <laughs> versus nature. Those are the <laughs> themes of, of qu- thinking man's metal, I believe. I was a it. term thrown at Queensryche. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Good for them. Were they from Mercer Island? Was any member of Queensryche from Mercer Island? Maybe. Are they from Seattle? Are they a Seattle band? They are a Seattle band. Oh, well, then Seattle. you know what? I think the odds are pretty good that they're from Mercer Island or nearby. Maybe Bellevue, Kirkland. I'll bet Kirkland. Well, and Nancy Wilson. Did either of the Wilson sisters have a home on Mercer Island? I don't know, but Paul Allen did. <laughs> Steve Miller did. Steve Miller, like a uh, jet airliner, yeah. abracadabra Steve Miller? Yeah. He had, a, he had a place on Mercer Island. Yeah. Supersonic Jack Sigma, starting center. Of the Seattle Supersonics, absolutely. But Seattle was like Zeppelin... Yeah. You know what I mean? It was pretty yes. just I can't wait to include that that wonderful little musical inter- interlude that you just put on the podcast. Can that be it was your, it was grungy. Can that be your theme song, please? <laughs> <laughs> Richard, please cut and paste. Uh, Ethan's little, I will call it the, the Seattle Sonnet, whatever that was, that was really incredible. Rain. And I, I felt just captured the essence of a city. Well, listen, <laughs> Ethan. Brando. We've been talking for an hour. I know. I got I to gotta, I gotta get I got to go do some dishes. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, you have graced me with your presence. I am so fucking psyched that we got a chance to do this. You're the best. Would you, would you please uh, tell... Uh, your wife, I said hello. I haven't seen her in quite some time. Yes. Uh, and uh, I can't wait till we can hang out in person again. Me too, man. Um, and you are the absolute best. Is there anything you need to promote? Uh, I'll just leave you with the fact that uh, I sang Bloody Well Right at a karaoke night. One of those karaoke nights at a bar where it's all strangers in the room. And I thought it was going to go over like, I thought I was going to murder that place. And nobody knew it and nobody cared. And so that song and I now have a real like tender relationship that is also i will say this it's not a karaoke faux pas but the intro to bloody well rights lasts <laughs> for about four minutes as people are hearing right now so you're standing there like an idiot in front of that karaoke crowd it is a faux pas now that you say that it was entirely my fault they may have what? known the song totally and they were like i fuck you there was four minutes of you standing there was it your birthday party a few years ago that I took it upon myself to win that night, even though there was no competition going on for karaoke? I need you to know that your wasn't your fortieth birthday. Was it your dude? That was I think my thirtieth. 
No, that was my 40th. That was. I, I took it upon myself to win your 40th birthday at karaoke, even though there there was no karaoke competition. You, you did you and you did not say, "Hey, I need someone to come away as the clear winner tonight." But I think I made it. I think I made it my own game to win your 40th birthday at karaoke. I said a wonderful little place in Koreatown. Hey, we're done. I love you dearly. I can't I love wait till. Can't wait till I can see you again. And to the rest of you, thank you so much for tuning in. We're growing, we're getting bigger, and you can help by liking, subscribing, leaving reviews on Apple, telling your friends, come on, let's take the Brando cast to the next level. So until the next time, cats and kittens. 